HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza on a beautiful day here in the sunny Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are joined in studio by a very special guest, Richard McCarthy of Slow Food USA. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So we're not going to talk slow today, but we're going <laughs> to talk about... Um, slow meat. So I want to jump right in. What is slow meat? Slow meat is, in many ways, brings to the foreground what slow food has always done best, which is convening people together around purposeful action, creating safe spaces for difficult questions to be addressed. And I think there is perhaps nothing more iconic in America in terms of difficult issues with our food system than our relationship with the animals that we raise and eat. Uh, much of that uh, occurs in great obscurity, um, hidden behind a veil of sort of industrial secrecy. Uh, the growth, the extraordinary growth of local food systems and civic engagement around them is now reaching a level of maturity in many, many communities around the country where meat is that last sticky wicket as to how is it that we cannot get local um, meat from field to fork? And what are the obstacles to prevent that from occurring? And yet when I travel around the country and meet with local food communities, they're doing such extraordinarily creative things to support the good, well-raised meat, uh, the good, clean, and fair meats. Um, and yet there are many stumbling blocks, uh, whether it's access to markets or access to processing or the very questions, one of the tricky things is, do we perhaps eat too much meat? 
and um, and do we eat too much really bad meat that is uh, would not fit into our equation of good, clean, and fair? So Slow Meat is a gathering, a symposium that we are staging, a relatively modest symposium in Denver in June of this year to bring together um, – 100 delegates, roughly half Slow Food chapter members and activists and farmers, together with practitioners and experts who touch meat, whether it is as land and water issues, farmers, processors, niche processors and butchers and chefs, as well as public health advocates who are concerned about issues of antibiotics or the issues of childhood obesity. And together, in one weekend, we will do lots of wonderful things. Uh, farm tours and fabrications and tastings. But the serious side of it is we will pull together um, some of the best and brightest minds about what can we practically do as individual consumers and as local food communities to slow meat down, to turn the herd in America so that we can begin to act on and measure the impacts of, the act, of, of our actions so that we wind up with a more robust, um, healthy, uh, meat economy that is good for local economies rather than extracting wealth from local economies, which our current economic system does with meat, um, and invest in the alternative. Sounds like an ambitious couple <laughs> of days. Um, and we are going to be joined a little bit later in the program by Joe Maxwell, who has kind of the interesting designation of sitting on multiple sides of the issues facing a meat production, both as a hog farmer and the former lieutenant governor of Missouri. So we're looking forward to connecting with him. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some of those categories that you mentioned, uh, land and water, animal husbandry. Um, you know, there was a, a couple core um, spaces that you guys are looking at for the conference. And one of the things I was struck by looking at the website is this word consider. Hmm. Consider these things. And I'm wondering... How did you land on those on those areas, and um, you know why consider that seems, you know, I, I, I'm like I, I'm like yes, okay, consider consider like to what end, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm, that's that's an interesting point because we did, I don't want to say we stumbled upon consider, um, but I think it meat is a divisive issue. It is one that we when I think of the last 20 years of my work in food, um, there there was a sense of discovery among many of us coming to food issues from a variety of backgrounds. And uh, there was a great deal of learning that occurred, a great deal of innovation that has occurred. Um, There's also a growing balkanization on whether one piece or one philosophy of whether lots of meat, snout to tail, or no meat at all, and um, and I think that uh, what we want to be able to create is a safe space to consider the impacts of our actions, uh, consider the policies that are in place that prevent or support uh, meat production and distribution and consumption that we would say fit in uh, with the values, with the slow food values of, of good, clean, and fair. So we want to consider many of the issues that are hidden behind this this veil. Um, so yeah, that's interesting that you that that struck you as um, uh, is it enticing? Is it um, holding back? Um, uh, I, I think what is interesting for me as a longtime community development person, you generally walk into a meeting knowing what you want to get out of it, 
And I would say that the growing maturity in the food system as we see places where, whether it's processing facilities and mobile slaughter or if it's particular um, local regulations uh, that allow for a certain kind of meat production uh, and processing or whether it's the issue of certain species that are disappearing, um, we're beginning to find that there are areas and and issues that have a great deal of expertise and um, it may be the rare breed folks are talking to each other, but they're not necessarily talking to economic development people. So we want to begin to consider it as a holistic system and how wonderful it is to talk in terms of holism. The problem is it then becomes overwhelming. Like, oh, it's such a huge system. I don't think we can, or a huge set of issues we can't address. We want to connect those rather big holistic thinking with very, very pragmatic practical interventions uh, at all of the stages. So I guess to consider that, that connection between the big ideas that are lofty and we want to bring them down to the ground to practical action. So you can essentially walk away with like a checklist of things to do. And that checklist is not something that we at Slow Food USA will say, here's what should be on the checklist. These are the non-negotiables. Um, I think if we bring together people who are doing it, people who are thinking about it, um, and consumers, eaters who, who care about what is going on in their food choices, we bring them together in a, in a really – in a safe space to tightly facilitate bringing out the best of it, we'll wind up with what will look like a menu of action, a sort of a buffet from which you can choose from what can our community act on um, practically, whether it's developing a meat-buying club, um, uh, growing a CSA's capacity, or working with the farmer's market in your community to develop an incentive campaign around health, healthily raised meats. I mean, there, there's a wide array of things that could come out of it. Um, the job we will have is to synthesize so that it can become um, actionable and measurable. Yeah, I think to me, and I know, and I've said this on the program before in my life, when I feel like I'm facing a big problem that I don't really know the answer to, I'm like, get a bunch of smart people together in a room who like care a lot and are workers, and you'll walk away with some, some next steps, maybe not the final solution, but you're on the path. And so I think it, it really sounds like your goal here is to get on the path. But the role of your organization may be in kind of curating a little bit who are these delegates and and how can you talk a little bit about that process and how you ensure that you're kind of hitting enough diversity from a industry standpoint a geographical standpoint what that process looked mm, like mm. any kind of concerns or things you might do differently next time you know that you've learned over the process well we certainly knew that this was not something that within the slow food tent everyone underneath it um was enough to pull together the broad scope of who we would like to pull together. There's expertise in animal welfare. There's expertise in antibiotics. There's expertise in uh, the raising of of, uh, of cattle and and poultry, and uh, and there are different pressure points. Um, it's certainly not a gathering of everyone who is a true believer on every single point. Um, it's certainly not a, a unified community that we're pulling together. We think there is a lot of common ground. 
um, but there may be compromise involved. Uh, and there's certainly areas that I am absolutely fixed on because I've got it all figured out because I know very little about it. And as we begin <laughs> to actually unearth the details, it becomes very complex. And we hope to have enough experts who understand the complexity of the different issues together. So what we tried to assemble, what we are hoping to assemble in late June in Denver is roughly half slow food members and half practitioners who may not, you know, may not be familiar with the snail. And, uh, and we think that should provide balance. Um, this balance will hopefully yield a, uh, a menu that we can act on so that a year from now, in June 2015, also in Denver, we will pull together a much larger gathering under the banner of Slow Meat that will be much more outward-looking. Uh, there will be some outward-looking aspects to this event. We're thrilled for the public day of activities uh, that include a bison fabrication and tours of farms and processors whose practices we really admire um, that I think we can learn from. Uh, the um, speaker and uh, real sort of expert on um, land and water management, Alan Savory, will give a public lecture that we hope will bring in many outsiders. An important part of our community is Slow Food Youth, who will conduct a disco soup using remnants of the bison that is fabricated uh, to feed very many people on food that otherwise would go into landfill. Um, so there are several aspects that are public to this first rather small, modest gathering that we hope will be much larger um, next year, where it could be a gathering of different gatherings, whether it's niche meat processors, uh, grass-fed growers, uh, animal welfare interests, um, and who knows, maybe even a handful of vegans, uh, to begin to address, well, if we did eat less meat, what might that look like? Is it necessarily a sacrifice of sacrificing flavor and taste, um, or do we need to reorder the role that meat plays in our design of menus? I mean, I think certainly in this flexitarian age, we're beginning to see a loosening up of the traditional plate, need not be a hunk of protein in the middle, um, and then surrounded by uh, supporting casts of characters. Um, this is an exciting time culinarily, and what does that mean in terms of how we design the the food we eat, the money we spend on the food that we eat, and looking at it through a variety of prisms, whether it's public health, eco ecology, uh, or wealth creation. So if I am out you know, listening mm -hmm. to the show right now and, and I work in the business and I want to become a delegate, is there space available or do I wait for next year? Probably wait till next year, but I would say by all means... Uh, as we cobble together this um, motley crew, um, it is not too late to begin to inspire, influence, and perhaps participate. Um, we are pretty amazed by the response. Um, we are sifting through the slow food delegates, and there are more uh, nominees than we have slots for, which is really exciting, and, and, and more so when we look through what they're doing in local food communities. Meat does play an increasingly large role. Uh, I mean, and I, I think this does speak to the, the sort of revolution in our food movement. The low-hanging fruit has been the low-hanging fruit. It doesn't require nearly as many hands-to-touch products as it does when you involve meat. Because there are so, whether it's regulations or the investment to 
manage the processing and the shipping and the storage, uh, the cuts. There's so many. It requires so much collaboration. And as we know, collaboration is not a natural act. So it is extraordinary that of the good things that are happening, that there are so many because there's so many forces against them to occur. Well, before we head to break, I want to I wanna get through two quick questions. The first is money, sponsorship, mm-hmm. putting the event on. Can you talk a little bit about who some of your supporting partners are and, and how that process went for you and if it was like there was obvious choices or mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. difficult choices? Well, I, uh, we are delighted that we have, we have uh, garnered support from key organizations that we really care about. Um, I mean, everything from ranches that are believers, Tomcat being one, um, organizations, companies like Whole Foods that operate at a much larger scale, and I think scale is one of those really difficult issues, um, that we are... Certainly, for one, no issue is off the table. So it's, it's, you know, and this is always a concern with sponsorship is what will you be able to talk about, not be able to talk about. What we found was uh, an extraordinary um, energy and excitement and desire for there to be, conversa- you know, thoughtful conversations about these issues. We're certainly looking for more sponsorships, uh, media sponsorships, and uh, uh as well as, well, the more support that we can raise for this gathering, the more affordable it is for participants. And it is extremely important. We have scholarships for, for, for those who have difficulty, limited resource growers, to get there. Um, but the, the interest among both the philanthropic and corporate community has, um, has really excited us, that indeed there is a desire to really... Um, take some of the innovations that are in play in certain pieces of the food system and geographically certain um, regions and to, be, to really accelerate that exchange. And, uh, and I think that it's on that basis that most of the interest has come from. Yeah, I feel like messing, kind of messing with the middle of someone's play that's like on par with any of the big kind of <laughs> divisive political issues of our day. Well, before we had to break, um, deliciousness, um, always a factor in slow food events. And maybe you can just talk a little bit about the importance uh, that that plays when, you, when you're putting on an event like this mm-hmm. and what you're excited to maybe share with folks um, on the kind of culinary landscape or from the flavor perspective. Well, one of the interesting, I think, real perks of where we're, where we're staging the event is at the University of Denver in, um, in Denver, Colorado. It's an incredible LEED-certified facility, uh, conference center, and culinary teaching center where we will uh, conduct a bison fabrication um, with some of the local um, butchers and experts in the field on the ground um, on the fabrication of these extraordinary creatures, a, a bison. Uh, the bison will then be served up on the, the Saturday nights. So it'll be spending a day with some of our Terra Madre chefs and chefs, collaborative chefs, to prepare a, um, a meal that will feature the bison. But again, it will not be a giant meat-a-thon. Um, it will be proportional to how much meat we should be eating. And uh, 
but we will also have some educational components beyond the, the bison fabrication, pairing uh, different meats with different spirits and beers and wines in order to um, tease out you know, that, that very thing that I think fills the space that we feel is so important in slow food is the balance between joy and justice and the balance between the pleasure of the table along with the responsibility to get everybody to the table and, uh, and, and to share in the bounty. Thanks a lot. We're going to go for a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be uh, joined by Joe and continue our discussion of slow meat. Hang tight. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, and we'll be right back. This is My Used to Be by Pamela Royal on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full-circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report. We are here in studio with Richard McCarthy, Executive Director of Slow Food USA. And we are joined on the phone by Joan... I'm sorry, Joan. Joan, uh, changing your gender. Joe Maxwell, <laughs> who's uh, Director of VIP, the Vice President of Outreach and Engagement for the Humane Society, and will be one of the delegates at the upcoming um, Slow Food Meetup in 2014. Joe, welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be on. Hello, Richard, and thank you again, Aaron, for the invitation. So I want to um, I want to know, Joe, from your perspective, I mean, you... You know, you're a hog farmer. You have a, a, a background in public service. Um, you're currently working for the Humane Society. You're really sitting um, at a very unique position to comment on what's happening in the, in the world of meat right now. And what are you hoping to talk about at Slow Food? Well, I think what's important is, uh, one, I want to uh, really thank uh, Slow Foods USA for uh, their ability to bring together a core group of delegates from around the country. Uh, I think each of us will bring our own perspectives. And as you mentioned, I, I have uh, probably a broad uh, understanding of what is going on within the meat industry in the United States and the need for us to have this dialogue, to talk to consumers, to talk to processors, to talk to uh, farmers and ranchers. Uh, to have a dialogue about how we can begin to build back a traditional, sustainable uh, food system as it relates to meat. And I, th- I think there's like something a little strange to me about 
um, you know, if one of the focuses of the conference is thinking about should we be eating less meat, you're kind of in the in the position as a producer of encouraging folks to consume less of your products. And I'm wondering if you can talk yeah. a little bit about that. Well, first of all, I think it's important for everyone listening and for the, the consumers across our great country that we just can't afford the cost of cheap food and this cheap meat. It's not uh, affordable. Uh, now, it's the cost to the animal. Uh, I am an animal husbandry. I, I raise hogs. Not I'm not a pork producer. I don't raise pork chops. These are animals, and, and this cheap food policy in this country has caged and created these animals in a very inhumane way. The farmers, since I started farming, there are a million fewer farmers in America today. We've driven the farmers off the land, and the animals indicate crates and cages. Our environment is suffering. A former editorial writer for the Des Moines Register, uh, that Iowa is the largest egg-producing state and pork-producing state, said it has become the toilet bowl for the, for the Midwest because of the cost to the environment. And then the rural economy, a report just came out showing an increase in poverty in the United States and a higher percentage of those individuals living in the rural areas because we have devastated uh, bringing in industrialized agriculture, um, the the uh, the economy and, and the hope and the dreams of the young people. Uh, so I think we have to talk about the real cost of food, and that can also be just our own personal health. And we need to be able to appreciate those farmers who are doing it right, who are good stewards of the land and the animals, and make sure that they're being paid the value that's necessary uh, to do this right. And that may mean we're eating less meat. And, again, it could be just for our own health. But we need to do it right, and we need to be able to present that to the citizens and have dialogue on June 20th through the 22nd. So, the you know, you're kind of located in the, the, the prime spot for uh, hog raising in this country. And I'm wondering... Can you share with us some of the pressures that you've faced over the years as um, facilities in your farms in your area, um, you know, are changing and, and production models are changing? Can you give us a little sense of like what that's felt like from your perspective? Yeah, I'm. I'm um, I began farming uh, after a short stint in the in the United States Army, and um, so around uh, 1978 was the first time I filed income tax papers as a farmer. And uh, what I have seen in my lifetime on the farm is the drying up of the market opportunities, which drove down the incomes to the farmers and drove them off the land. The industrialized agricultural model, whether that's in chicken or in hogs, and we're now seeing it in cattle, is one of a vertically integrated, fully controlled system that dictates the farmer how much they're going to get for their products. Uh, we, we now, uh, when Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle in 1906, uh, the, uh, the, the trust-busting attitude was alive in America, and at that time the four largest packers controlled 45% of the marketplace, and we were outraged as citizens. Today, the four largest packers in the beef and pork and chicken, uh, the, the smallest amount is 63 to 68%. So what I have seen is the drying up of the opportunity to have market access, forcing farmers either off the land or into these uh, systems where they become indentured-type servants 
raising animals that belong to large corporations that very likely are foreign-owned corporations in pork and in chicken uh, and in beef. I am... I'm wondering if there are are things that, you know, as a hog farmer that you're nervous about that might come up. I, I think one of the things I hear often from people who who are raising animals for for meat is that the public doesn't understand the realities of animal raising or the, the ins and outs of certain types of farm management practices and are, are nervous at, at this point to kind of open their farms or open their doors Um does that does that ring true for you at all? Is that you know people copying so, out? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, uh, it is a reality uh, in the minds of farmers and ranchers, uh, independent farmers and ranchers in America. Some of that is because industrialized ag uh, has uh, worked to convince farmers and ranchers that organizations like uh, the Humane Society of the United States that I'm a vice president of uh, is really the enemy, uh, or the environmentalists are the enemy. And so that has been ingrained in the heads and minds of, of our independent farmers and ranchers to such a level uh, that they're, they don't, they're concerned about having this dialogue. But the fact is, is uh, that it is the industrialized ag, big ag, that's driven the farmer off the land. That's the real enemy. Uh, when you have uh, the National Cattle Beef Association lobbying against the country of origin labeling and the new GIPSA rules, that would go to help the farmers and let consumers have transparency about where their meat's coming from, then, then that, is, that is what we need to point to, is, is who the real opposition is to, to having a dialogue with consumers about responsibility of the farmer and the rancher on the farm as it is to the land and to the animal. Uh, and I, I, again, commend uh, uh, the, uh, the work of Slow Foods USA and, and, and stepping out and having leadership and putting on a conference about slow uh, I think that uh, we do have to work hard. Uh, I was a little anxious about joining the Humane Society of the United States uh, here three years ago uh, because uh, trying to put uh, together that face on farming. But the consumer is hungry to know uh, what it takes to do it right down on the farm. Uh, they have great amount of faith and trust in America's traditional family farmers and ranchers and are hungry to know. And it's our job, I believe, as producers to step up to programs like this one that's being held in Colorado and Denver on June the 20th through the 22nd. It's, it's our job to be at those tables and explaining uh, how it can be done right and taking a leadership role right alongside of these type of organizations. And I might ask you to comment just kind of, um, you know, you worked in, in government for a while, and, and if you're kind of putting that hat on in the same way that I'm, I'm curious about what were the challenges you faced as um, someone who's growing hogs, um, as someone who's working in public service in government, can you talk a little bit about what that landscape, what were some of the challenges and, and pressures, and, and do you feel kind of yeah. hope in that space? I'm... Uh... I have uh, I became very interested in public policy uh, in the 1980s when in uh, Northwest Missouri had the largest number of bankrupt farm bankruptcies. It had a high increase in the amount of farmers committing suicide because they were losing their family farms. FDIC had to move an office into the region because of all the community banks that were going broke. And I, I thought, to, I thought to, as a young man uh, on the farm, I thought, well, 
you know, this is government public policy. Elected officials are making a choice on the kind of food system we can have. We can have a good food system that is sustainable and responsible, but we have to have the public policy that supports it. So I thought, well, I'm as smart as those folks, and I ran for office and did hold office in the state of Missouri for a number of years and worked hard on sustainable agriculture issues. Uh, I passed uh, legislation that banned packers from owning livestock. I worked on giving my attorney general in the state of Missouri authority to enforce, enforce the GIPSA rules. I had a state cool provision. Working with national leaders around the country, we were winning. Uh, then what we saw was was a big ag coming in and joining with other uh, uh, special interests in Washington, D.C. and in our state capitals. And we saw millions of dollars being spent in elections and, and, and defeating those men and women who were standing up for a sustainable agricultural model. And today, we see our trade organizations, many of them lobbying against the very interests, as I mentioned, NCP, NCBA, uh, NPPC, which is the National Pork Producer Council. We see these, uh, these organizations using these checkoff dollars against the very interests of the farmers that are paying into them to lobby against our interests as family farmers. And it's a very important part of what we need to do is to continue to have a dialogue uh, with those, uh, with those uh, elected officials. The final point I want to make is, is consumers need to understand in five years we'll be having another farm bill. We need to not have another farm bill in America. It needs to be a food bill. It's more about the food and what choices we'll have in the marketplace than it is about farmers. If we want to continue to, continue to see these high subsidies going to a few select commodities, then don't engage the policymaking. So as part of the Humane Society of the United States outreach that I do, we're talking about the next food bill so the consumers understand it's their right to have an opinion about the agricultural policies of this country. And, Joe, just my final question, because you, you, know, because you wear a lot of these hats, I know my listeners are, are going to be questioning, like, is he really a hog farmer? Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your production, how many hogs are raising, sure. the size of your farm, so folks have a better sense of, of what that looks like? You bet. And, and the listeners would join in with my twin brother, Steve, in saying, are you really a hog farmer? Since I went to work for the Humane Society, I've not been home a lot. So I want to put a plug in and say thank you to my twin brother, Steve Maxwell. <laughs> so he's, he's on the farm, and he's he's American traditional family farmer, and I'm proud of him. We also have a farm manager that uh, that I help offset my lack of time on the farm right now and to help uh, labor-wise. His name is Louie Bowers, and I'm proud of Louie and his family. He's got three young girls that are helping farrow sows on our farm. Uh, we run about 360 sows. Uh, we have them in multiple locations. We are uh, we have been humane, uh, certified humane in the past. Uh, we've we've marketed into the Whole Foods with a producer group. Uh, we uh, we currently are audited and uh, proud to be a, a level step three under the Global Animal Partnership. Uh, we raise our hogs without any crates, either farrowing or gestation, and they all have uh, the ability to see the sun and feel the breeze. Uh, we're very proud of the work that we do on our farm. It's it's. Uh, not a large, large farm, uh, but it is within this type of production, uh, within the producer group I'm part of, I'm, I'm the largest uh, farrower. Uh, so it's a real farm, and, um, and we, uh, we struggle like any family farm to make sure that it's profitable. 
we're blessed. My brother and I are fourth generation family farmers in the state of Missouri. Joe, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. You bet. And Richard, we thank you for your leadership and, uh, and your thoughtfulness in putting this conference together. I'm proud to be part of it, as is the Humane Society of the United States. If you want to follow up more on the Humane Society, you can visit their website, www.humanesociety.org. Richard, I want to give you the final word here. You know, Slow Food USA, you're in kind of a unique position to look at things from a national perspective and to convene, you know, a national group to be looking at these issues as Slow Meat. And um, I'm just curious, you know, Waving your magic wand, what does success look like? What are you hoping for? <laughs> I hope that success looks like a degree of consensus as to what are those logical next steps that we take as individuals and what we take in communities to invest in the good progress in the food system uh, as it pertains to meat. And uh, I certainly is, I think you could hear how grateful we are to pull together into this uh, assembly of different voices, someone with the stature of Joe Maxwell and the Humane Society, I think that what we can begin to see is a peeling away of that culture of confinement, which dominates the meat conversation, uh, the confinement of the animals, the confinement of the wealth, um, and the, the confinement of consumers not being able to connect to all the different stages of our food. So we hope that there will be some indicator that we are beginning to peel away that veneer that obscures us and confines us from the reality of the food system that we participate in um, and so that we can make much more informed decisions about what do we want to invest in and support, whether an individual consumer or a policy standpoint, and what system would we like to see wither away. So if folks want to follow the Slow Meat conversation, they can visit the website, www.slowfoodusa.org, backslash Slow Meat 2014. For folks who aren't going to be able to make it out to Denver, what's the best way for them to support your work? Well, certainly to sign up and follow what all of the social media conversations will be at Slow Meat and, uh, and before Slow Meat uh, throughout. We, we will be designing a, an event so that even if you're not there, you will be able to follow, hopefully follow the presentation, some of the presentations, as well as conversations beforehand to begin to shape what are some of those best practices, those best practices we hope to pull out. And of course, I have to say, become a member. Thank you. And <laughs> I should have said that myself. No, we, we need as many members who can rally around uh, the red snail. Awesome. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been another episode of The Farm Report. You can find this, like all 35 of our live weekly shows, by visiting the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are also a member-supported organization, so if you believe in our work, please click that Donate tab and become a member today. Uh, if you're not uh, on the web, definitely look us up on Stitcher Smart Radio or iTunes. However you find us, keep listening and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>